Hello, and welcome to the 21st Folio Podcast, a podcast about modern Shakespeare productions of stage and screen. On today's episode, we're going to be discussing the new uh, Netflix film, The King, directed by David Michaud and starring Timothy Chalamet and Joel Edgerton, who co-wrote the script with um, David Michaud. I'm your host, Alex Heaney. I'm the editor-in-chief of Seventh Row, and with me today I have two guests, Caitlin Merriman. Hi, I'm Caitlin Merriman. I am a random Shakespeare lover and or commentator occasionally. And regular guest on the 21st Folio. (laughs) I'm Mary Angela Rowe. Hi, I'm Mary Angela Rowe. I'm the editor-at-large of Seventh Row. And we're going to discuss the king. So before we get into our discussion of the film, here's the trailer. Do you feel a sense of achievement? No, regard. In any regard. Do you? A new chapter of my life has begun. Already I can feel the weight of this crown I wear. I've been forced to rely upon the counsel of men whose loyalty I question every waking moment. I need men around me I can trust. I'm here because you are my friend. King has no friend. King has only followers and foe. But I will come with you. The reason we're talking about the king on a Shakespeare podcast is because it's a very loose adaptation of Shakespeare's Henry IV Part One, Henry IV Part Two, and Henry V. So for a bit of context, we're going to give you a brief plot summary of Shakespeare's plays. Caitlin, take it away. Okay, so Henry IV. Um, you've got Henry IV. He is king because he killed the last one. Um, and... <laughs> Uh, everyone remembers this, but no one more than him. Uh, he has a son who really loves, seems to love at least, running around with his friends, including Falstaff, who is gross, but very funny, um, and drinking and whoring and doing all sorts of things that a respectable middle ages boy shouldn't be doing, um, And his father is upset about this. His father's dealing with rebels. There's that whole subplot. Not really necessary. Um, We find out pretty early on Henry is kind of pretending to be like this. But anyway, he eventually, through a sort of long rambling process, um, ends up sort of reconciling with his father before his father dies. And his father says to him, basically, in order to... um, make people move on from the fact that the way we got our power wasn't particularly great you should probably make war with France because it will distract them um and Henry becomes king 
and decides to cast off his former friends from Eastcheap, um, who taught him how to interact with people who weren't courtiers, um, and got him into a lot of trouble. He got them into trouble. Um, and Falstaff shows up and says, basically, hey, um, this is going to be great. We're going to be able to do everything we did before, except be, you know, royal and have lots of money. And Henry, understandably, I think, um, but also sadly, um, cuts off Falstaff and just kind of says, yeah, not so much. And at the beginning of Henry V, we're kind of picking up where we left off with him and his court trying to figure out a way to invade France and make it seem like a really natural choice. Henry V is really about him trying to find a way to be his own king and use that kind of ability he has to interact with non-courtiers um, to inspire his men in this uh, seemingly completely pointless invasion of France. Um, you just have to cope with the, the major personality shift and pretend that it's not happening. It's fine. The King is theoretically an adaptation of the Henry IV Part One, Henry IV Part Two, and Henry V. In practice, they do Henry IV Part One in about 20 minutes, Henry IV Part Two in about three minutes, and the rest is Henry V. I say theoretically because basically they follow the film follows the structure of Shakespeare's plays, but then does everything opposite day. So instead of Falstaff being cast off, Falstaff goes to Agincourt. Instead of Falstaff being super fun and funny and teaching Hal stuff, teaching Hal to have fun and like encouraging Hal and all his bad behavior, Falstaff is somber and kind of dumb and also really big on war in henry the fourth part one falstaff is like honor pricks me on ha 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 by which i mean i found a way to benefit from this war with money and i brought together like i mustered up the worst possible candidates because i wanted money in the king honor really does prick him on and apparently he's an honorable man in fact they are all honorable men um and so, yeah, it spends most of its time on the, the Agincourt um, campaign, I guess, and effectively, like, follows the key plot points, but makes a ton of errors in the process. Oh, it's also set in ye olden times and with modern language. Uses a mix of modern and ye olde language. Right, but deliberately does not use Shakespeare's language, even though it's, like, doggedly following the structure of Shakespeare's plays. Scene by scene, for the most part. Okay, where shall we begin on this? Trashter piece, which is probably too nice. I'm not saying it's good. I would never say that. But this could have been a lot worse. Okay. How? Yeah. I mean, I mean, I would like to know how it could be worse than incredibly boring, incredibly long, and, like, insulting. I kept throughout watching this, and I finished it, like, 45 minutes ago, so I'm still pretty angry. Um, <laughs> uh, I kept asking myself, what is the point of this? And I never found an answer. Like... 
I went in thinking, okay, it's Shakespearean, so it's a Shakespeare adaptation. And I guess at a structural level, like we were just saying, that's true, but it takes everything Shakespearean about it and just throws it out the window. So I thought, okay, maybe it's an attempt at a sort of historical take on the Shakespeare, um, where they kind of sort of think more realistically about what it would have been like, but it really doesn't feel like that at all, especially when you consider that they put Falstaff in, who didn't exist as far as we're aware. It just, it felt like, it felt like people trying to make something like the crown out of this, but they didn't put any of the crown's good bits in. It was like the worst bits of Shakespeare, you know, talking about obscure laws about the right of succession, which, to be honest, only exists in Shakespeare to be sort of made fun of and pointed out how stupid it is. And then the worst of the crown, which is people staring moodily out of windows, and like merges it <laughs> into one kind of just two hours and 20 minutes of, I don't even know. I don't, I, there was so little in this film that felt like it was actually doing anything interesting. And considering the cast that they had, it's crazy that that's, that happened. Um, yeah, I just I don't I don't know who its intended audience was because anyone who knew Shakespeare is going to be furious. Anyone who wanted a historical take is probably bored and disappointed. And anybody who just wanted to stare at various good-looking actors for a couple of hours probably gave up after 20 minutes because they were like <laughs> even our pets or Timmy, like they're not going to do it. I can't do it. <laughs> so yeah, I, I, I'm still completely none the wiser as to why this was made and for what audience it was made. And yet for like mystery reasons, a lot of people appear to have liked this film or at least not hated this film. Right. I don't understand. Oh yeah, people like, some people liked it. Some people even loved it, and like who at loved worst, it? Some people were like, "Yeah, it was okay." Oh god, I, I fundamentally don't understand it. I mean, I don't understand why this is a Shakespeare adaptation. Alex, you and I have talked about this before, mm-hmm. and like at a certain point in the movie, I tried to think of it as. If this wasn't purporting to be Henry V, would I still dislike it? And the answer was yes, although I would have disliked it less if it hadn't been trying to be Henry V, and mm-hmm. so obviously failing. Um, but, like, why would you make this adaptation, right? Like, Succession is sort of a riff on the King Lear premise, but it's so far away for, from King Lear that you don't feel bad. You know? You don't feel, you don't feel like... Succession should is like wrong and not being faithful to the characters. Well, also it's well written, well acted, and not boring, and it's funny. These are so. These are all salient points. <laughs> all salient points. I don't understand what they were trying to do with this text. I don't understand what they were trying to say about the play Henry V by making the changes they did, and I don't understand why they chose to make this Shakespeare adaptation that is so faithless to the original. 
It's as if they didn't understand what was good about Henry V. Well, it's, I mean, I think what's especially bizarre is that they go through the major, like, they really do stick to his structure. I mean, aside from the fact that they've really cut down Henry IV Part One and Part Two, when you get to Henry V, you have the, you, you know, you have the, the tennis balls arriving, and that's an insult, except in this version, he has to have it explained to him, because this hell is really stupid. Then we have Salic Law, and... This Hal is so stupid that he doesn't just like go, oh, no one can follow Salic Law, but why are we even talking about it? And has to have it explained to him that they're trying to give him an excuse to go to war. And then, you know, we have the Harfleur scene, except that there's immediate surrender, so we don't even have once more into the, because we didn't even go once. Actually, can I, can I stop you there and talk about this for a second? Uh-huh. Like... So there's, there's, there's two things in the stuff that you've raised that I think is, like, worth noting. Okay. One is that this movie is so self-serious that there is not, like, a single goddamn laugh in the entire film. <laughs> well, except for Robert Pattinson. Robert except Pattinson for Robert Pattinson, is Pattinson hilarious. who is a delight. He's the only thing with a heartbeat in this, you know, for, like, three glorious minutes. Yes, but let us leave aside Robert Pattinson, the lone savior of this film, the lone person who was apparently having a good time on set. And who appears to have been having the time of his life, by the way. Like, the script itself is, like, incredibly self-serious. It's like everybody involved decided, we are going to make a serious movie. And it is going to be serious business. And it's like they didn't understand that if you totally lose the human dimension, what emerges is not serious but two-dimensional. One of the greatest things about Henry V is that we have this contrast between the, you know, the, like... The gang of lowlifes that Hal used to hang out with, who were genial and ridiculous, and we love them, and then they die, and it's tragic because we've laughed with them. You know? It's not tragic because they were noble people. Mm-hmm. It's tragic because we liked them. And we liked them because they made us laugh and made us smile. Mm-hmm. So they, like, in trying to make a serious text, they stripped out a lot of the stuff that made Henry V weighty. Well, and they also stripped out the two defining characteristics to me of Henry V, like what makes him a good king. One is his ability to converse equally with um, lower class people and the nobles. The other is his ability to, you know, inspire with with his speeches. They don't have any lower class characters in this, so that's not a factor. In fact, they've decided that, you know, Falstaff is respectable, which was never true and then on top of that they've got you know either the hubris or stupidity or some combination to think they can make a better speech than saint crispin's make the spaces between you england i don't know what that means i think the word you're looking for is audacity um oh yes yes. (laughs) and also that like that's that moment where the spaces between you, this is England. I was like, this is just Rupert Brooke, but worse than Rupert Brooke. Like, if I should die, think only this of me is so much better than that shit. And it's already terrible. So, yeah, that I was fur- infuriated. I mean, all I could think about was how die all die merrily was better than Hal's speech which is literally the speech that Hotspur, who is supposed to be really, really bad at speech making, gives. And then the contrast is St. Crispin, so we see what a much better King Hal is. I mean, if you can't even make your inspirational speech better than 
die all die merrily? Like, not a high bar there. I just, like, the lines from that speech are so iconic. Like, we few, we happy few, we band of brothers. Mm-hmm. And they thought they could improve on that with make the spaces between you, England. Yeah. Well, and it's... I mean, it's also... It's not good. The speech then becomes all about Hal, and it's like, you should fight for me because you love me. Which is the opposite of what Henry V's speech is about, which is, we are brothers. We're in this together. We're going to seek glory together, Mm -hmm. and we're going to... Sorry, go ahead. I'm not sure that's true, Alex. Um, in fact, I think it's, like, actually kind of worse than that. Okay. Um, because in Henry V, the play, Henry, like, depending on how cynically you play Henry, Henry has a reason for going to France, and it's either a political reason or a sort of empire-building reason. Mm-hmm. You can see it as a cynical ploy to shore up his power back home, or you can see it as a genuine sense that he, these lands are his and he's aggrieved. Mm-hmm. But either way, there's like a very clear sense that what what Henry V is doing is for England. Yeah. It may also be for Henry, but it's at least a little bit for the stability of England. But that's With... not how he pitches it. No, but like, here, let me get it out. Okay, sorry. Um, With this production, I don't actually have a very good understanding of why Henry chooses to go to war. <laughs> I understand that the triggering event is that the French king apparently sends an assassin after him, which seems like kind of, A, apparently the French king sent the world's worst assassin, who was like, I don't want to do this, and B, who cares? Like, I don't understand, the film doesn't give me enough information to understand what motivates Henry to go to war. Mm Mm-hmm. And so when he talks about make the spaces between you England, there's nothing about England and what he's done. Mm. You know, it's not that it's about Henry. It's that it's about question mark. Yeah. That, okay. That's fair. But it's, it's, I guess it's more what it isn't about is the people he's trying to inspire. Where Henry V is all about, you know, he knows how to connect with people and he makes it about them. Not about his quest for whatever Mm -hmm. um i had real trouble getting a handle on the motivation behind anything henry did i think partly because Mm -hmm. i feel like he didn't actually have a definable character he just sat in rooms and occasionally on fields and he looked solemn and people gave him advice about things and it kept happening over and over again and occasionally he might crack a smile or be upset about something but most of the time it felt like he was just in this solemn contemplative state but we never got anywhere further than that I feel like part of the reason for that might be that we had really no setup of the Henry the fourth hell no setup of this wild kind of um dude who lives for pleasure and lives for fun no no we had that one scene of him having sex with that lady that one which he didn't seem to be even enjoying particularly enjoying that much there was a lot of him sleeping just sleeping he did a lot of sleeping in part four in the in the in this film and i was like 
maybe not so much thieving and whoring but sleeping for sure lots and lots of sleeping and i thought to myself this is weird and i don't understand it and then i thought oh are they gonna do like a, a nice little um contrast like a juxtaposition with a brief because obviously it had to be brief because you know time was marching on and we had to get through a lot of material um a really brief kind of henry the fourth wondering how he could possibly sleep you know and that wonderful wonderful scene in henry the fourth um which jeremy irons on the hollow crown just absolutely nails and like I thought, oh, are we going to have a nice little comparison between Prince Hal, who's just asleep all the time, and his father, who cannot sleep? <laughs> and then they didn't even do it! And I just... I couldn't <laughs> believe what was happening. Oh, that would have been so good. Right? Like, it was right there. I never even thought of that kid, and it's great. <laughs> but they just... They didn't do anything. He just... He was asleep. And then, at one point, Falstaff was asleep. <laughs> and then, again, Falstaff was asleep. Basically, Falstaff just seems to have been there to be asleep and also give advice. Um, and I... Good really advice. advice! No, 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 no! Good, like, 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 Falstaff is apparently, oh, yeah, like, yeah. smart and good-hearted, and we need to talk about, like, why would you make this change? Yeah, it makes no sense. Because it robs the character of all richness or interest. Well, also, really boring, like... It doesn't make Precisely. sense why Hal hangs out with him, you know, in... Precisely. In Henry He's no the, fun. Well, yeah, and in Henry IV, the reason, I mean, I guess there's different ways of playing this, but the one that I like anyway, which is also sort of the hollow crown interpretation, is that he, you know, his father is difficult. He wants to have some fun because he knows soon he's going to have responsibility. So he wants to have fun while he can. And on top of that, he wants to, it, you know, when he hangs out with Falstaff, he has the opportunity to both have a father figure and to play king of the king of the thieves. So he both gets the father figure and he also gets to have power over the father figure. So it's like realizing all of the things that he can achieve in his relationship with his father. In this, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would you tarnish your name? so that you could hang out with Mr. Boring and sleep. He, like, lectures you a weird amount about the fact that you're not really doing anything and then does absolutely nothing else to push you to be better. Like, like Falstaff seems more like Hal's nanny. Yeah. Like, he gets Hal up, he cleans up Hal's messes, he, like, grumbles a bit. And then does nothing else. Also, how disreputable could he be if Hal bringing him with him to war, everyone's like, oh, that's great. I'm so glad we have brilliant military strategist Falstaff with us. I mean, brilliant military strategist that guy. Or brilliant military strategist who? Like, some people seem a little bit cranky about following Falstaff, or at least listening to Falstaff's advice. And we're supposed to take it that... Any noble who criticizes... I'm thinking about the scene before the Siege of Harfleur here. Mm. So let's let's back up and provide a little context for people who haven't watched the Kenneth Branagh Henry V, which is magnificent. Just watch that. Watch that in the Hollow Crown. Don't watch the king. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so in the Henry V, the, the Kenneth Branagh Henry V, which is... It has problems. It's not perfect, but it's, like, very good. Harfleur is this, like, hard-won battle in which we switch... In, in, in Shakespeare's play, we switch between scenes of Henry himself, and then we focus 
a lot on the people in the trenches, the people who are suffering as a result of Henry's decisions, you know? The people who are experiencing all of the difficulties associated with trying to take this walled town that's holding out against these British forces. Um, and we, they're, they're people we've come to like, and we feel their suffering, and we feel how hard it is for them to try and accomplish this task. So when Harfleur surrenders, it feels like an accomplishment to the audience. It feels like there's been a change in the tide of the war. Something is different now. In The King, the siege of Harfleur is apparently very short and very easy. <laughs> we never meet anyone who... We never meet any of the foot soldiers, so we never experience the pain that's exper- that is the, the difficulty that is the meat of the siege of Harfleur, right? Mm. We never see what they go through. We never understand what Henry is putting his soldiers through in order to win. Nor do we see this as, nor is it like a point of character development for, for Henry as he sort of like learns how to inspire his men and the sacrifices he's making and, you know, how to be a king. Yes, right? Like, the only scenes we see of the Siege of Harfleur are a bunch of guys sitting around in Henry's tent. And some of them go, oh man, we gotta have a siege. And, or like, and Henry's like, that's going to be difficult. We should listen to Falstaff. Falstaff will tell us how to win. And because he's Falstaff an honorable say, man. Because he's a man who none of the people in this tent have ever heard of before. If I were one of the people in that tent, I would be like, who the hell is that guy? What does he know about anything, right? They're right to be skeptical of this random person Hal pulled out of the pub to help lead their <laughs> army. But we're so, but we as the audience are supposed to take it that anyone who's skeptical of Falstaff is like wrong and to be poo pooed. Like I, I don't understand where this film gets off with this. At one point in that scene, um, Dorset, I think, says, "Put a stop to this drivel." And I was like, "Yes, thank you. Oh yeah, thank you for saying what we're all thinking." <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. Can we take this opportunity to talk about the ye olde modern English? Oh, yes. Let's discuss oh, this. Dear. Like, just, really oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, my. <laughs> what is your favorite example of ye olde English? I know what mine is. I will smite you with mine own hand. <laughs> oh, man. Like... So to for those who haven't seen The King, and if you haven't seen The King, I encourage you to continue not seeing The King. Um, if there's anything you take away from this podcast, it should be, you should not see The King. Um, or watch, like, skip ahead to about the one hour mark, watch the two minutes with Robert Pattinson, and then continue with your life. That's fair enough. We will talk about Robert Pattinson, the only good part of this movie, later. Thank God for Robert Pattinson. Um, but... For those of you who have not experienced the glory that is this script, it's written in modern text, but with, like, interventions by... It sort of felt like interventions by Yoda, you know? Like, where some words in the script have been seemingly randomly moved around to sound a little bit like... Not like actual, say, Old English or actual Shakespearean English, but just to give the feeling of the medieval times version of ye olde stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Does anyone else have a better example than I will smite you with my own hand? Well, my favorite line is when he's confronting his pal who he discovers betrayed him. And he says he's got like this problem and it wobbles before me on a silly little stool. And then he screams, stop the fucking charade. Does he drop an F-bomb? Yes. He drops. Oh, good. (laughs) That's. Okay. What was wobbling before him with a silly little stool? So the guy was standing on a stool and having the hem of his robe, I guess, pinned. I know, but why is that like, who thought that was a good use of, who thought that was good dialogue? I mean, really, this is quite apart from the dialogue in that scene. So for, this is the scene where Hal confronts the man who betrayed him who's been his mentor or his eminence grieves throughout this whole process. And it turns out that this man faked the supposed assassin that supposedly spurred Hal to make war against France. And this is like some straight out of law and order business. Hal comes into the room and this man is standing on a stool while a small boy pins up the hem of his robes. Now, for those of you who have watched a lot of law and order, as I have, you will know that if someone in Law and Order is having makeup put on them or is having their clothes fitted, that person is evil. It was like the most transparent signaling out of like daytime television. And everything in that scene, like I can't remember anything else in that scene because I just remember being embarrassed for that writing, you know? I had long since given up on the movie at that point, so... I was excited that it was nearly over, so maybe I am. No, I I just, I remember thinking, (laughs) I remember thinking in that scene, like, it just, for one thing, it never, the film never really told us who on earth that guy was, um, which was, which was just maddening. Like, I had no clue. I, I thought his name was William at one point. Maybe that was it. I literally don't know his yeah, name. No clue. He was Macduff. <laughs> what? In my head, he was Macduff because he was played by Sean Harris, who played Macduff in Justin Kurzel's Macbeth. And, you know, he was like a slightly more corrupt version of Macduff in this. But in my head, he was just still Macduff because they hadn't bothered to tell us who he was. And, like, I don't, it just, it's so, it's, it was so weird and it felt so tacked on and just this guy who has been very seriously, like most people in this film, giving Henry advice while Henry stares moodily into the distance. And, um, and Henry just kind of trusted him without really explaining or indicating why he trusted him at any point. And then it's like, oh, this guy's a villain. And you sort of think to yourself, no shit. Um, I never could have seen that coming. <laughs> and and I, I think, I don't, I don't know. I was just like, I'm supposed to feel an emotion um, at this. And really the only emotion that was making it through was relief that I could see from the progress bar that it was nearly over. <laughs> I mean, the thing that this reminds me, so you're saying it's sort of like the worst parts of the crown. Um, and like, at least in the crown, when they're staring off, in, staring through windows, looking moody, 
like the purpose of that is they're in an empty room and you're supposed to feel how lonely they are and like the weight of the crown and how it's a lonely existence which is in fact a thing that is in Shakespeare's play however Hal or at this point Henry but to me he's like Hal throughout this film because he never grows up um Hal gets to bring his best buddy from the pub to war with him so he never has time to feel lonely so what is he moody about a fine question uh <laughs> i think he's moody about the fact that i don't know timothy chalamet looks good moody <laughs> it is sort of the only expression he has in this film right he has this sort of sad face and he has this furrowed brow face of concentration and those are the only two faces we get for the entire movie so we had talked at length about this film's many failings and there are so many um but one thing i actually wanted to ask both of you because it was something that i was genuinely confused about is like i don't know what they were getting at with this film what do we think they were trying to do with this movie? Okay, I'm going to go on. I, I think this is stupid. However, I think maybe what they were trying to do is they're trying to show that Hal is a good king because he wants to think seriously about war, so he brings Falstaff, and that he's really, really cares about his men, which is definitely why he leads them to war and then goes, oh, shoot, they're all going to die. Maybe we can do a one-on-one -on -one combat instead. Except we're not supposed to think that that's stupid. We're supposed to think that that's noble. Just like how it's like some bizarre extension of what happens in Henry IV Part One, where Hal is like, let's not waste lives and says to Hotspur, you know, let's just do this, you and me. And then Hotspur says, fuck that. Die all, die merrily. And Hal's like, well, I tried. I mean, in fairness, they did, like, literally assemble multiple armies. Like, um... I think that's what films... it is. It's like, he's the only honorable man, and then he's surrounded by people who are just off for their own gain. And then he's like... Except that we never meet any of the so-called people that Hal is supposed to be trying to save. Yeah. Right? Like, this oh, yeah. film... Oh, I'm not saying I, that like, they I, did I that successfully. I don't know what this film is doing. Oh, I'm not saying that this is a successful thing that they're doing or that it makes any sense. That's just my best guess of what they thought they were doing. Like, in Henry V, part of the... Part of what makes it... Part of what makes it hurt is that we meet Bardolph and Nim. Mm -hmm. And we know that Bardolph and Nim are not only sort of genial rogues that we come to love... They're also Hal's old buddies. Mm -hmm. And Hal's turned his back on them, and they're the people who are suffering because of Hal's decisions as king. Mm -hmm. And we watch them suffer. For various reasons, both good and bad. Mm -hmm. It's like this movie doesn't understand how to create empathy. <laughs> Among other things. It felt like they were trying to take I don't know I think that um, hell is noble and, and thinks war is bad is uh, probably as good a place to start as any but like 
It's like they were trying to take something from this story and turn it into a modern prestige style drama, but they mm-hmm. cut out everything about it that was interesting and everything that actually provides the drama. Like, it's one thing to have a, you know, representation of Agincourt and the battle and what kind of muddy horror it would have been. Mm-hmm. But you still have to have a sense of personal, individual, like, intimacy with somebody. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, they should have made that battle a lot shorter. But, I mean, that's that's true mm-hmm. of really the entire film. But, like... <laughs> zero minutes. That's how long this, zero. Have, this film should have been. No, 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 just Robert Pattinson's Robert... tumors. The rest is the deleted scenes. Yeah. <laughs> That would have made, that would have been better. I just, yes. it, I, it just, it felt like if the film had been made almost exactly the same, but they were wearing suits and sitting across boardroom tables, it would have made a lot more sense to me because it's that, it was that kind of distance that everyone had and, and mm. I don't know, I just, I still, I still have no real clue. Um, but whatever they were trying to do, it did not work. Yeah. I mean, I feel like part of the, complete misguidedness of this production is the fact that you have Joel Edgerton who co-wrote the script who was playing Falstaff who said I want to play Falstaff but don't give me any of his good lines yeah don't give me any of the reasons people like Falstaff and the reasons uh, that Falstaff got two spin-offs and send me to Agincourt it's like like the polar opposite you know like when Ian McKellen did Richard III he was like, ooh, that's a good monologue in Henry VI. I'm bringing that in. I'm going to do that one. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Joel Edgerton is like, why would I want to do any of these incredibly wonderful lines? Why would I want to play one of the best characters in the English language? A character so, you know, so beloved by audiences, he got a sequel and a spinoff. Like, only one of the most scene-stealing characters in all of Shakespeare. Yes. But, you know, don't give me any of the characteristics, which were why he stole scenes. And it's like, I understand wanting to maybe make Falstaff sympathetic in a way that uh, he might not be. But uh, there are so many ways you can do that without, you know, removing everything that makes his character who he is. Like, at one Mm -hmm. point, at one point, I think when Hal's asking Falstaff to go to Agincourt with him, he's like, I need someone I can trust. And I'm like... What? The Why fuck? would you trust Falstaff? There's, like, there's literally a scene in Henry the Fourth, Part One, which is about what a terrible liar Falstaff is, where he changes his story every two minutes, and he starts from "I was attacked by two people" to five minutes later, "I was attacked by more than a dozen people." Like the whole one of the main like basic things about his character is that he is not at all trustworthy, and everybody knows yeah. this, and it's not a surprise, and. He, it's it's just it's incomprehensible why they didn't just make this character somebody else. Just cut full stuff out of it entirely if you want to, mm-hmm. and and make Joel Edgerton's character a trusty, sort of gritty whatever. But he could have been what's his face like who says tennis balls. I can oh. never remember tennis balls. Might be used. thingamajig. Exeter. Yes, yes, yeah, Exeter. Sure. Yeah, it's Exeter. 
He could yeah. have been Exeter. And, and Ex- Lord, one that will do just well a progress start a scene or two. <laughs> exactly. Um, yeah, it was... Oh, my God, I can't even... Okay, I'm just, I'm just babbling through Fury now, so... You can misread or oversimplify Henry V as a pro-war play, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you can do that Henry V. Nicholas Heitner tried to do that Henry V. It was weird and a bad fit. Yeah, Laurence Olivier um, did that as a war propaganda yeah. film. And it doesn't quite work, right? Because the like the play contains a lot of internal tensions. Mm-hmm. Um, but you can misread the play as a pro-war play. And so I can understand wanting to adapt a version of Henry V that is, if you if you if you misunderstood the play that way, I could want I could understand wanting to adapt the play differently. I could understand wanting to present a Falstaff who has experienced the horrors of war, and who is therefore at least a little bit PTSD, right? Like a Falstaff who has this undercurrent to him. But you can do that without gutting what makes Falstaff a compelling character. And in this, it's like they kept the name and nothing else. In their desire to present someone who had, like, experienced the seriousness of war and understands what's at stake, they, pardon me, failed to present what was actually at stake, i.e. the experiences of the people that Henry is sending into war. Mm -hmm. And... They took away everything that made Falstaff the character that audiences love to watch, which is the way that Falstaff himself, like the play, pulls, like, is filled with contradictions and pulls in different directions. Well, and and I mean, in Shakespeare's text, Falstaff is somebody who is kind of aware of the, is aware of how difficult war is, you know? That's what the Honor Pricks Me On speech is about, is about, you know, is Honor going to save my leg? No, or is, I can't remember the exact line, but it's definitely, there's definitely a, a, a thing, uh, likening honor and a leg or an arm. I can't remember. A limb. Um, and there's the fact that he, you know, he knows that it's scary and that he could die. And that's part of why he's like, is honor really worth that? Um, I want to live and yeah he also is kind of a you know the fact that he takes advantage of his position to muster soldiers in order to make money off of it it's partly like because he's cynical about war because he kind of knows mm-hmm. that he doesn't see this war as some great noble glorious enterprise glorious enterprise he sees it for you know effectively what that war is which is you know nobles squabbling with each other Mm-hmm. And you know, taking it out on the and nobody loses but the poor. No, exactly, nobody loses but the poor. And in a way, Falstaff is the conscience there. Like he is, you know, <laughs> not without his own hypocrisies. But in a way, he's the one telling us, you know, this is not all. You know how honor is not all it's cracked up to be. And. Mm-hmm. Yes, I'm exploiting people, but I'm being exploited and everyone's being exploited. And if I don't exploit people, then I'm just... I'm just a, a patsy. patsy. Yeah. Yeah, it's like the world... Falstaff is the cynical experience of war that this the king was trying to present, which is there's the people who are patsies and the people who are, doing, or who are pulling the strings. Well, and also, I mean, in Shakespeare's play, there's a, there's a big difference between the internal war with... Hotspur, 
compared to the war with France. I mean, the internal war with Hotspur, it's like Hotspur's dad put Henry on the throne. And then these guys couldn't agree, so suddenly there's a war. It's not really seen as a, you know, a noble affair, even if it's part of how Hal shows his, you know, his worth and his might. Whereas Henry V, although should they have gone to war is, you know, you can play it as either yes, they should have gone to war or no, they shouldn't have gone to like what, you know, there's how justified is he in going to war? That's a that's a production choice. But what's not a production choice is this is unambiguously a major victory for England. This is like a real show of, you know, bravery and skill that shows that, you know, a small number of Englishmen can beat a large number of Frenchmen because the English are great and because Hal is a great leader. Um, you know, it's unambiguously presented there as like, Whatever got them there, in the end, they did a good job. Um, and it was like, you know, there's nothing ironic about um, Hal's speech where you're like, oh, yeah, you're going to strip your sleeves? What a jerk you are. You shouldn't have brought these people to battle. And that's partly because we get to see Henry feeling the weight of his own decision because he sees he goes and he talks to people at night and he hears them talking about how they're going to die. And, you know he becomes aware of the the fears and I mean you could see it as he exploits that in order to get them to do what he wants them to do or you could see it as him you know trying to get through to them in the situation that they're in to at least make the best of it what do we think about how much this production or this variation on the theme of Henry V weakens Henry as a king well I mean almost nothing that happens at any point is actually motivated by what he wants or mm-hmm. what he's trying to do. Um, mm-hmm. All the good things that happen happen in spite of him, it seems, rather than because mm-hmm. of him. And any time he shows any kind of actual, like, grit or heart or it's sort of a willingness to actually confront something. It feels completely wrong because it's at odds with everything else that his character has been like in that scene with, um, the archbishop with the lisp, um, which was hilarious. Uh, when the archbishop is sort of saying, Oh, we need to actually march on Harfleur and, Henry spent the whole film so far talking about how terrible war is and he doesn't like it. And then he kind of says something like, um, oh yeah, because you know so much about war, don't you? And it, it just feels so completely wrong. Like, you don't know, what what are you supposed to know about war? You've just spent the whole time telling us that it's stupid and you don't like it. And then we get this moment of like, oh, well, you don't understand because you're not a soldier. And it's like, it just feels completely wrong it feels like a different character talking. And I kind of felt that Mm -hmm. way a little bit about his speech, as terrible as it was. It, it was like, Oh my God, you're showing an emotion. Um, that's the first time that's happened. Uh, and yeah, it just, it feels like they sort of expected the emotion in Henry to appear at the point where it was supposed to appear 
without doing any mm. of the groundwork to like build it up and develop it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and it was yeah, like absolutely. that, it was like that, not just for him, but for everybody in that film, except for, well, I mean, was there really that much emotion behind the Dauphin? Probably not. But like, <laughs> yeah. Who um, cares? Robert Pattinson was great. He was really good. <laughs> I mean, this might be a nice time to segue into Timothy Chalamet's performance, which is something that a couple of reviews I've read have talked about. And I was wondering what the two of you thought about that. Because I think we can agree that he wasn't given a lot to work with, but... Um, I think, and I feel this way about pretty much all of the actors in this, that their performances were fine. Like, they're good actors, like, if Tara Fitzgerald, for crying out loud, Tara Fitzgerald gets 30 seconds, and it's not good. And it's like, this is Tara Fitzgerald. She's brilliant. She, I know she's acting the hell out of this. But it just doesn't have any impact. And so I spent the whole time kind of thinking, I've seen these actors, at least some of these actors, do incredible work. And yet... Mm-hmm it's just not happening in this film and so yeah every time I wanted to critique a performance I just found myself critiquing the direction because it just Mm. it feels to Mm. me like there's no possible way that this could be this bad because all of these actors are doing a bad job (laughs) um and I felt that especially about um the random sister character um played by was it Thomasina McKenzie um the his sister the queen of Denmark and yeah, thought, Thomas and Mackenzie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, I can tell this is a good actress, but nothing that is going on right now is good. I, I just, I could sort of almost see the acting in every single line that she did. And it just, it felt like she had nowhere else to go with it. Okay, but what do we think the, the script was trying to do by introducing her, right? Because she's this, she doesn't appear in Henry V. She, like, shows up for 30 seconds to talk to Henry about his feelings and then leaves. I think they realized that there were, without her, two female characters in the entire thing. And thought, yeah, <laughs> let's replace one of Henry's brothers that he's supposed to have an actually okay relationship. Not perfect, but, you know, they sort of can talk about stuff occasionally. Um who just get completely written out or die off screen with this sister character who was just like, let's have another woman. Um, and there was really no point to her being here, being there at all, really. Um, it was very strange. Um, and I think that was the, I think probably partly because the character had no context to her at all, really. That was where I sort of was thinking about this extremely weird performance where nobody was doing anything. It's like they were just reading their lines. And I felt that way about Timothy Chalamet as well. And I'm like, that is nuts. Really? We know this guy can act. He can act the shit out of anything he wants to do. But this was just like, when you're given nothing to do but say occasional things and stare moodily into the distance, what are you supposed to do with that? But staring moodily into the distance is one of his fortes. I say this not as a criticism, right? Like, I mean, Alex and I were talking about this. And 
I initially had thought the way you did Caitlin, which was like the script gave Timothy Chalamet this like the script gave the poor man nothing to do. He did the best that he could with a two dimensional script. And it's not really his fault that this film doesn't work. And Alex had a slightly more, I guess, nuanced take. Um, and what she said, I mean, Alex, correct me if I'm wrong. Um, oh, I also said that, well, this is, I don't want this to come off wrong, but Timothy Chalamet is approximately the width of one of my thighs. So I don't believe he could beat anyone in single combat. I don't mean this to be a criticism of his appearance. What I mean is, if you get the sense that a man has, or a woman for that matter, has done an exercise on a daily basis, they have a body that looks differently than Timothy Chalamet's body, right? They have a body that is more muscular than Timothy Chalamet's body. Like, Robert Pattinson, that guy is built. I believe that guy does sword things every day, you know? Whereas when you see Timothy Chalamet, a slight young man, I don't think this is a man who has been practicing with a giant weapon that is about as large as his own torso every day. And normally I think the idea of like bulking up or slimming down for roles is kind of dumb. But in this case, if you're expecting me to believe that this person can beat another man, a considerably larger man for that matter, in single combat, you're going to have to give me a little bit more. The fact that he so jarringly did not look the part for a man who is supposed to be at least reasonably good at hand-to-hand -hand combat made it very difficult to believe his role in any way. Alex had a slightly different point. Alex's point was, I don't mean to speak for you, Alex, so correct me if I, like, got this wrong here. But my understanding was that your view was like, he's, he's too young to play this role. I was thinking about other people who had played um, Hal and Henry V. And although Hal is like a young guy, and you know, Henry V is what 25, usually the people who play him are at least 25. And so have had some life experience. Um, and I guess my feeling is that Timothy Chalamet is a little bit too much of a child to play Hal. What, he was, what, 21? Maybe 22 when he made this? Um, yep. And he... Barely out of his teens. There are people who are 22 who have more life experience. Like, in a way, he's basically been playing versions of the same part, which are a sort of coming-of-age narrative arc in a naturalistic register. He hasn't trained... Not that you have to train in order to do Shakespeare or to be a good actor. You don't. But one thing that you do get out of going to drama school is you get to stretch by playing lots of different kinds of roles, including roles that you wouldn't necessarily naturally be cast for. And so that gives you the opportunity to explore, you know, how do you use your body? How do you use your voice? Um, how do I play an old person? How do I play a young person? It gives you sort of an arsenal of tools that then you can use. And it also gives you the opportunity to you know, play someone different from yourself. Um, you know, Timothy Chalamet has basically just played, you know, American boys. You know, he hasn't even played 
like a European <laughs> or like somebody in, you know, he hasn't done a period piece that was, you know, set before 1980, before this. And, you know, he, not only did he not train, but he kind of went straight from, you know, he'd done some theater, he'd done some indie movies, but then he went straight from obscurity to Call Me By Your Name, and now he's like one of the biggest international superstars. And so he doesn't, he hasn't even had the chance to, you know, quietly perfect his craft on screen by, say, working with lots of interesting directors and taking on smaller parts and, um, you know, working with other actors to teach him how to, to teach him, you know, like, how to do the job and how to be better because how you get better is by working with people who are better than you. Instead, he's kind of gone the sort of Tom Hiddleston route of being famous before, you know, getting big before he's ready to be big and being asked to carry a film. Not because he isn't capable of carrying a film, but this is a film that's about somebody really growing up. I don't know how, I mean, like, I don't want to judge, I don't know Timothy Chalamet personally. I don't want to judge him on his, like, how much has he grown up? But there's only so much you can grow up when you're sort of in this Hollywood bubble. You haven't done any, like, you know, at least if you do a degree at university, you have to, like, read things, you meet people, you grow up, like, a lot in four years. But he hasn't had sort of any version of that, anything to kind of, like, stretch his mind and stretch his abilities. And so how do you play somebody who is doing that if you haven't really gone through that any version of that sort of transformation um and how do you then show that sort of maturity and weight if you haven't not that you have to experience things but i mean this is like basic growing up human growth stuff not like oh i didn't live in the holocaust so i can't play you know a jew in the 1930s it's like how do i be a human if i haven't had a chance to be a human yet <sighs> so i guess i kind of felt like he was ill-suited to the role not because he couldn't one day give us an excellent towel but I think he's kind of too young for it you know I was thinking about you know Tom Hiddleston when he played Hal he was in his late 20s and he was actually a fairly a young Hal by most standards um Alex Hassel when he did it at the RSC I think he was in his 30s I mean most people who play Hal are too young I was you know if I on my list of people I'd love to see play Hal is James McArdle who's like 28 now. I think I started this when he was like 27 was when I really wanted to see him do it. But he's kind of like, he's a grown-up. He's played proper grown-ups. You know, he was in Angels in America. He's played Platonov. He's played Pierre Gint. He's like, he's, he's, and he looks like an adult. <laughs> yeah, and I, I mean, in addition to the fact that whatever, he has more experience. But I guess part of it is... Uh, I don't know, it's, it's, it feels like it's too much of a stretch for Timothy Chalamet, and part of that is just a life experience thing. And then you, mm. you compound that, the fact that he didn't have a good script to work with, and he didn't have a director who knew what to, like, could give him any direction. And you have this poor kid who's kind of floundering in a part that he's not well suited to. Which is so funny, because we read a lot of, I read a lot of reviews that praised his performance, and I sort of... I felt that through no fault of his own, at least, he was kind of wooden. I feel like, as well, there, there was room to do a Hal who was young and inexperienced and not grown up and, like, make something of that. 
you know like nobody's mm. stopping you from messing with the timeline this isn't a historical piece it's not true to what happened it's not true to the play you can do whatever you want with it so uh, a sort of a a, a a film that sort of takes the Henriette as a springboard and explores someone who isn't grown up and someone who is still a child and, and doesn't have that kind of weighty understanding in any, in any sense. You can do that, but they didn't, they didn't do anything with it. They just sort of tried to, again, I have no idea what they tried to do, but they, there was, he wasn't this kind of, slightly more mature Hal um, who had through the events of the previous plays grown up and he wasn't this immature kid he was just kind of somewhere in between them and it just didn't they didn't do anything with it it just kind of sat there on screen like pretty much everything else in the film yeah so it's it's not even like they couldn't have made Hal as played by Timothy Chalamet now, interesting and 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 made it work. Uh, they could have done that, but they didn't uh, for reasons passing understanding. Since we've been so unrelentingly negative about this, I think this may be a good opportunity for us to say some nice words about Robert Pattinson, <laughs> who is the only person having fun in this movie. Also, I'm convinced the only person who read Henry V and understood it. Yes! Like, Robert Pattinson has now become my iconic dauphin. <laughs> I actually thought to myself for a moment, imagine if he and Timothy Chalamet swapped roles uh, for this film and just, like, took the energy that they brought to each character and switched right? characters. It would have been so much more Yes, Alex and I talked about this. Like... Yes. But from the second that you see um, Robert Pattinson as the Dauphin, like, already, before he even talks, I'm just so much more convinced by him than anybody else. And I don't know, maybe it's because he's the only person who seems to have the ability to express emotion with his face. Usually that emotion is sort of sly, you know, humor. But, like, or I don't know, there was just something about him, like, instantly and his I don't know it seemed borderline terrible French accent but it didn't matter that much um <laughs> uh I don't, he was just he, look it was no worse than Timothy Chalamet's various accents through the film that's true yeah his almost <laughs> almost English accent occasionally um <laughs> accurate yeah our pets's scenes were just the only moments of the film where I expressed an emotion other than for fuck's sake. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I think that the moment during the Agincourt battle, when he does the whole like ridiculous kind of, I am flourishing my sword at you and then falls over Mm -hmm. was the only genuine, so funny. I laughed so hard and that's all I could think about, really, for I, the rest of the <laughs> rest of that whole scene was the hysterical kind of. But uh, the thing that uh, that I was bathos. I was annoyed about with that was that nobody else laughed. Like I didn't expect Henry to mm. laugh, but I kind of expected some chuckles from the Brits. 
Yeah. Like, the Brit- I feel like the British soldiers would have laughed at that, you know, at that point. Yes. However tired and in pain and grieving for their lost friends they were, they would have had a little chuckle at this ridiculous puffed up dude slipping over in his full armor and they didn't and oh, yeah dear. it was that was maybe a weird choice but otherwise that whole scene was just hysterically funny i've never seen the dauphin played as such a total dirtbag before and it's perfect like every other dauphin performance pales in comparison to dirtbag dauphin who makes terrible sex jokes at hell <laughs> Like, yes, I believe this is the man who said hell a box of tennis balls as a gift on his being crowned king. <laughs> you know? That's true, right? Because usually the Dauphin is such a joke, like, such a joke that you can't even believe he would he would think of something as smart as sending hell tennis balls as an insult. Like, that's much too classy for the Dauphin as usually played in Henry V, but you, I totally believe that Robert Pattinson's Dauphin would have done that because he just sits there and is like, oh, I am here to laugh at you, Hal. I am here to be French and ambiguously sexual (laughs) and make fun of you. And also balls, balls, they are funny. (laughs) You know, like, it was right there. He talked about the balls and that was great. I thought, yeah, It, it was just some very good ball related humor involved there <laughs> right in the great tradition of shakespeare right because well, honestly like also homoerotic humor also in the great tradition of shakespeare like it really does seem the hollow crown <laughs> like <laughs> i mean it really does feel like robert Pattinson. i mean <clears throat> to bring it back to tom hiddleston again my favorite topic when it comes to <laughs> how it kind of Robert Pattinson in this kind of reminds me of Tom Hiddleston in um, High Rise, where it feels like he's the only person who read the source material and understood it, including the person who wrote the <laughs> wrote the film and directed it. And I guess from what I've heard in interviews, it's like they were not expecting this from him. I don't know if they gave him any direction beforehand, but he showed up and was like, I don't know if Which they're going to like Which do you this. mean? Robert Pattinson Oh, sorry, Robert Pattinson. Sorry, I'm back on, yeah. Okay. Robert, pa- Robert Pattinson. Pats, we love you forever. Never change. But like, he showed up and was like, I'm going to go big or go home. And Joel Edgerton Absolutely. couldn't... Absolutely. <laughs> Joel Edgerton couldn't stop laughing when they were shooting. And so they were like, okay, keep doing that. Do more. And Robert Pattinson was like... Okay, if you want that. <laughs> oh, man. And it's like, thank, and it's, thank God he came with an idea. <laughs> because nobody else did. Yeah. Else did. Lord, like, he's the best five minutes of this movie. Yeah, uh, not just the best. He's the only not just, like, he's the only not just tolerable. No, he's the only not only tolerable, but actually entertaining part of That's the film because there's really no other tolerable part of the film except for the bowl cut of respectability which is hilarious although unintentionally um so for audience members who have not seen this film please do not see this film um timothy chalamet starts the film with his trademark sort of um european locks um that are about chin length i would say and 
in the early scenes of the film, everybody else in the film who is, like, good at fighting and or responsible has a bowl cut. Like, his brother has, like, a page boy cut. Hotspur has a bowl cut. There's, like, you know... Um, and then in the scene where Timothy Chalamet as hell decides to man up and start being kingly, he's crowned and he has a bowl cut. And so we're supposed to view, like, this is like the bowl cut of I am changing my life. The bowl cut of no more whoring around. I mean, he couldn't get any ladies with that bowl cut anyway. Timothy Chalamet's bone structure is beautiful enough that I'm confident he could get the ladies with a shaved head. Nevertheless, I agree with you that the bowl cut is not doing him any favors. Okay, fair. Fair. Um, are there other positive things we have to say about this film? I have none. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the production values were high. It didn't look cheap. Yeah. It didn't look good, though. That's another thing, another negative <laughs> thing I have to say about this film. <laughs> All right, let's do it, Caitlin. <laughs> the, the whole thing was desaturated to hell. The whole thing was like, so at some points yeah. it looked like it was black and white. It was just gray. And I kept expecting there to be a moment where that was different to like emphasize it. And it never came. And it just... It had this very, like, hashtag saving private Ryan yes, gritty feel, exactly. you know? And, like, I didn't understand the reason for it because, you know, the costumes and the sets were all really beautiful. Like, you could tell they were really rich and, and deep, sort of deep reds and deep browns. And it started off with that beautiful sunset um, at the end of one of Hotspur's battles in Scotland. And... It was just ruined by the fact that it had so much color stripped out of it. Um, and I just didn't understand why you would do that, especially in a film where so much of what you're doing is sitting and talking. That, like, it just seems like you do everything you can to kind of make that as rich an experience as possible. And, yeah, it just... Like, when I was watching Agincourt and I thought... I thought to myself, this is a battle that is always going to be very muddy because it's literally muddy. But if they had heightened at that point the saturation, it would have been an, maybe a more interesting choice and it would have maybe explained a little bit of the kind of grey, the greyness that came before because it would perhaps allow the audience to experience what we might imagine to be the sort of heightened color and heightened senses of a battle for your life. But they, they didn't. And it was just like, I was already having trouble telling the difference between the ground and the soldiers because the ground is gray brown and the soldiers are covered in gray brown mud. And then you just took more of the color out of it. <laughs> um, and the other thing that bugged me in terms of this film as a film perhaps this is the cinematographer's editorial comment about what the film did to shakespeare's text i.e <laughs> suck the life out of it oh, oh dear <laughs> that maybe makes more sense than any other thing i could come up with <laughs> sorry go ahead with what what else you dislike <laughs> i mean everything but um the other thing that bugged me was the weird incomprehensible way the film used music which was like 
it seemed to me like there was a scene where something was discussed, something of great import was discussed and everybody was moody and sat quietly and listened or talked or whatever. And then after that, there was a pulse of music. And especially if somebody was marching towards something, there was a pulse of music. But otherwise, it just, it didn't do anything. Much like with almost everything else we've talked about, there was no sense of cohesion between any of the music used and when we weren't listening to this pulse of music, it felt like it completely disappeared. And I just thought that quite a lot of the scenes where people were sitting and talking could have been made much more interesting by like a careful use of music. Um, but again, it just, it felt very strange. It's like, it felt a little bit like when you're at like a, like a wedding or a christening or a birthday or something and somebody in the room has been put in charge of the CD player and they're just a little bit off with the timing. So they like press the play button a few seconds late and it's way too loud and it's very jarring and then you kind of sort it out and get back to what it is you're supposed to be doing. And every time that sort of pulse of choral or orchestral whatever music came on, I was just like, oh, oh, okay, you're going to give me some music and then it's going to go away for another 20 minutes. Okay, so I know we already like sort of tried to answer this, but maybe not quite this exact question. But like, why do you think they wanted to make this? Like, why borrow from Shakespeare only to misunderstand it at every turn? Or think that you're better than it? Like, I don't even know. For me, there's a sense of like, a we want to be taken seriously project gone wrong right Shakespeare is sort of reputation laundering for actors you go do a Shakespeare and if you do it well you get taken seriously or at least you get taken a little bit more seriously right although let's be real it's you're proving that you can do good dick jokes which this film doesn't even try right See, this is the thing that people who don't read Shakespeare don't understand about Shakespeare. Um, But, like, the whole thing to me has a whiff of people who wanted to do a serious project and who saw Henry V as their serious project, but they were going to update it for the modern era. And they did so by missing the point of the play. So it seems like it was kind of a failed... I guess, like, kind of a failed debutante ball for a lot of people involved in this. Although nobody's first rodeo, so. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. Is it Netflix's first Shakespeare? I'm not sure. Um, it is? Mm-hmm. Yep. If, if we're willing to call oh, this yeah, Shakespeare. Yeah, yes. It's a good caveat. Um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it was like the. Um, people who brought you every other weird Netflix thing have now decided to bring you Shakespeare and that kind of like I don't know I haven't even watched that much stuff but it's like it's like in the style of the kind of gritty spare um, morally ambiguous prestige drama that Netflix brings you we bring you Shakespeare but Mm -hmm. it's not even like I have a note in my notes before I gave up taking notes um where yeah oh i hit that point too yeah 
back in our in our in our wilder days in our youth when we thought there was still something worth critiquing exactly um before i gave up i wrote this note which was like it's like it's like diet shakespeare with like 99% less shakespeare than regular shakespeare and i i think that there was an attempt to do that a little bit to take a story and translate it into this kind of modern style of like talking about the crown or I don't know house of cards but again if you took the crown or house of cards and took out everything that made them what they were you would get this um and it just I don't know it just it it got to the point where I was like this isn't even diet Shakespeare it's like it's diet Shakespeare by somebody who does not understand what Shakespeare is and what this play is about or these plays it's like CBS brand (laughs) diet Shakespeare yeah I have to say it gave me a newfound respect for the like plain English Shakespeare texts because like at least they do the play at least they try and give us some version of St. Crispin's at least he says, I don't know, once more, go forward. I don't know. <laughs> um, anything's got to be better than the spaces between us, England. I don't even know what they were going for there. Like, I went back and listened to that speech a couple of times to make sure that I had, like, captured the essence of it. And I still, I don't even know what they were going for there. I mean, maybe we can have, like, I I don't want to go on for too much longer, but I think maybe something that is worth having a brief discussion about is sort of the idea that you can have a good Shakespeare adaptation without doing Shakespeare's text, because that does exist. Um, And I, like, don't want to... I I worry that if you don't know us through our from our Shakespeare podcast, if you only know us from Seventh Row Podcast, you may not know that, like, we think 10 things I hate about you is brilliant. Um, yes. And that we're not just ragging on this because we're like, oh, they didn't like do the text. They didn't, they didn't say the lines properly. It's, it's so much bigger than that. It's like they didn't understand the spirit of what makes this text worthwhile. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of, I mean, this may be a good opportunity to segue into not all Shakespeare's are good. Not all <laughs> Shakespeare's are regularly performed. Mm-hmm. Timon of Athens, or Timon of Athens, depending on how you pronounce it, is, like, not great. Sometimes people do it interestingly, but it's, like, not a very good play. Not no finished. one performs Cymbeline because it's garbage. I mean, I saw a great production of it. It's like, it's bonkers. It's not good. But, but it's not. Yeah. No, it is. Cymbeline yeah. is the daytime drama of Shakespeare's. Well, yes. Right? Yes. Like, let's be real. Um, Cymbeline is not a good play. Cymbeline is, I got lost two sentences into this one paragraph plot summary. Yeah. Because too many things happened. Pericles, not good. <laughs> no redeeming features. Oh, no, that's not true either. There's the great part. You were part, wrong about that, Alexandra. There's the great part where the nun converts the, uh, pretends to be a prostitute or gets... I'm trying to remember. No, she's she becomes... forced into prostitution, and she like all she like speaks to all of her clients, and then she like makes them all go to church instead of buying her sexual favors. It's fine. This is a real play. This is a real Shakespeare. That part was great. That's already a hundred percent more compelling than the king 
<laughs> so, <laughs> yep. <laughs> we can all agree on that. Yep. <laughs> Even Shakespeare at his worst. <laughs> yeah. So what I think Alex is trying to convey here and what I'm trying to add to is that it's not like Shakespeare is the holy grail of English literature and is never to be touched or altered, right? There's some crap Shakespeare and there are some great adaptations of Shakespeare that take the spirit of the play and bring it into something new. This does neither of those things. Like, I think there are plenty of... I don't know if I can think of any examples, but... Um, good films of Shakespeare that are bad Shakespeare. You know, like, you can be a bad Shakespeare adaptation. Romeo huh? and Juliet. Baz Luhrmann's uh, Romeo and Juliet. It's exactly. a prototypical example. Favorite. It's, it's so good. great. Um, yeah. That's a really good one. Uh I mean, they technically do the lines, but the line readings are all terrible. And yet it is absolutely perfectly Romeo and Juliet. This film gets Romeo and Juliet better than Zeffirelli's yes. film, which actually which does... Which is nice and polite and has nice line readings and no one cares. Yeah. Yeah. So, it, you know, it's... I think you can get away with being a bad Shakespeare in a good film or a good Shakespeare and a bad film, but you can't do both, and The King is a perfect example of that. I mean, maybe that's the definitive word right there. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, folks, I don't know that any of us have anything better to say about this movie, and I think we've plumbed the depths of what we hated about this movie. <laughs> I mean, if there's one thing that I've taken from this movie, it's that Robertson, Robert Pattinson should get more roles. You really should. Put Robert Pattinson in everything. He's very He's good. great. And he, I enjoy how much he enjoys his job based on that performance. <laughs> yes. Okay, well, on that note, I think that's the end of this episode of the 21st Folio. Um, <laughs> Caitlin, where can listeners find you? Um, you can find me on Twitter at Caitlin Snark, um, where I sometimes talk about Shakespeare and bad movies um, and sometimes talk about other things and am snarky all the time. And Mary Angela? You can find me on Twitter at Laps Victorian and very occasionally you can find me, you can find my writing on 7th Row. And I'm Alex Heaney. You can find me on Twitter at BWestCineast. That's B-W-E-S-T-C-I-N-E-A-S-T-E. You can find, you can catch up on older episodes of the 21st Folio um, at 21stfolio.com or on basically any podcast app that you use. Uh, and you can check out the 7th Row podcast uh, at 7th-row.com. We would love to hear your thoughts on The King. If you liked it, please explain to us why. We want we to know. We would love to understand. If you hated it, we would also like to know because suffering loves company. <laughs> <laughs> So you can tweet at 21st Folio at 21STFolio, 21st Folio. Um, and you can tweet at us individually. We'd love to hear your thoughts. And if you enjoyed the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate and review the, ep the podcast and the episode um, because it helps us find new audiences. Thank you very much for listening.